You can push yours. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the second Wednesday of the month, and happy Valentine's Day, everyone, which means it's time for the healing power of integrative medicine with plant-based cardiologist, Dr. Baxter Montgomery. And today he's going to be talking about how actually removing medication helps the patients. Before I introduce him, I just want to thank everyone who pre-ordered my new book. It really helps when you order it before it comes out, especially because if we are going to become a New York Times bestseller, the pre-sales are the most important. Just be sure to save your receipt no matter where you bought it, because once the book is released, we've created over $1,000 worth of bonuses for you. Now, this is perfect because February is American Heart Health Month. Today is Valentine's Day. So who better to do the show than a cardiologist? And even better, he's a vegan. Please welcome him to the show. It's always good to see you, Dr. Montgomery. Likewise, Chef AJ. Thanks for having me and happy Valentine's Day to you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, yeah, you're one of my favorites. You just have the best laugh in the whole world. The best name too, Baxter. I love that name. I, and especially now that I know how you got named, I love your name even more. And so, you know, removing meds is very interesting because most doctors like to prescribe meds, not remove meds. You know, that's exactly right. And, you know, over the years, you know, I, I've learned, I guess I should say in reflection of the year, over the years, um, I've learned how our training was where we are trained to uh, create a diagnostic label for patients. And then based on that diagnostic label, we are then trained to put them on the right medications, quote unquote, right medications. And so the, the drug industry controls a lot of the science that's you know in our industry and a lot of the science that, uh, promotes the medications are geared toward, you know, um, attaching a molecule to a disease state. Uh, I'm a cardiologist. I see lots of patients with coronary disease. I see patients with congestive heart failure. I see patients with arrhythmias. And I recall when I was um, early in my training, actually I was uh, in my internal medicine training and getting ready to go into my cardiology fellowship. <clears throat> I made the decision to subspecialize in an area called cardiac electrophysiology, we deal with the electrical uh, disorders of the heart. So anybody ha has an arrhythmia such as atrial fibrillation or ventricular arrhythmias, uh, they would see an electrophysiologist. And we do you know procedures like ablations and we ablate pathways and implant devices. Early on, they use antiarrhythmic drugs. Um, uh, they have different classes. These are class one antiarrhythmic drugs. And these drugs were commonly used in individuals who had arrhythmias, uh, especially individuals who are at high risk for having a cardiac arrest due to a cardiac arrhythmia. These are individuals who would have heart attacks, uh, either uh, recent heart attacks or remote history of heart attacks, have scarring in their hearts, weak hearts and the like. Many of them, if we saw arrhythmias back then, they'd be prescribed an antiarrhythmic drug. Uh, but they did a study and they did a study looking at the antiarrhythmic drugs in certain patients who had just had heart attacks and had frequent arrhythmias. And they compared the antiarrhythmic drugs to placebo. And, and the idea was to show the effectiveness of the antiarrhythmic drug over the placebo, meaning that those on the antiarrhythmic drug, we were expecting them to have a better survival 
than those, you know, without the antiarrhythmic drug. When you think about it, if you have an arrhythmia and you get an antiarrhythmic drug, you should be protected from the arrhythmia. However, that study showed the opposite. In fact, the ones on the antiarrhythmic drugs uh, had a higher mortality than the ones on the without the antiarrhythmic drugs. In fact, the antiarrhythmic drugs had what we call a prorhythmia. They caused more arrhythmias than they protected. Uh, and so, and there are other studies you look at that had similar findings. Uh, and so that was an eye opener for me way back uh, early in my training. And fast forward, uh, we have lots of medications on the market. Uh, and I'm going to share a few slides on some. However, the drugs where we see efficacy, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are very careful in terms of how they tailor the studies. They look at a certain population. They uh, look at it for a certain period of time. Uh, they compare the drugs to, say, an older drug that may not have greater efficacy and may have similar side effects. So it's almost like, you know, if you are, you know, a person with, you know, uh, one broken leg, you're only going to race against people with two broken legs to make sure that, you know, you win. And <laughs> that's essentially what we look at when we're looking at the medication, the drug studies. So they'll show some efficacy over a short period of time. Uh, the side effects are there. But what you don't know is over a long period of time, the adverse effects of the drugs really outweigh the limited benefits that they purport. And so I want to share with your audience this whole concept of medication side effects and how we should be aware. So I'm going to throw up a few slides. Uh, I'll share my slides. And then, of course, you know, we can have a discussion afterwards and take questions. And I only have a few slides today, but I think they are worth looking at nonetheless. So anyway, medication side effects uh, become aware. So if you prescribe medications uh, by your doctor, whether it's a cardiologist or not, make sure you're aware of the side effects. Make sure you're aware of the uh, potential drug interaction of other medication of other medication you're taking, and you want to try to minimize the number of medication you're taking. So that speaks uh, volumes to to lifestyle. And since on this show you talk a lot about weight loss, I decided to dedicate a few exercises on some of the weight loss drugs. Uh, Ozempic being one of the most uh, more famous ones. Manjaro is another one I have some slides on, but. Um, if you get one of these drugs, you can look up the package insert. It's easy to find online. Uh, if your doctor gives you samples, often the samples have it. I think the pharmacy uh, can provide these package inserts. So if you look at the package insert of uh, Ozempic, uh, the first page you have what's called a black box warning, and there's a risk for thyroid C-cell tumor. So already you're at a risk for cancer. Uh, now this is sown in rats, but they don't know the potential effects in humans. Uh, so it's one of the contraindicators if you have a family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma or cancer or multiple uh, uh, endocrine neoplasia, or these are people at risk for cancers, uh, endocrine cancers, then it's contraindicated. And of course, if you have an allergic reaction or hypersensitivity, it's always contraindicated. So you have the absolute contraindications up here. Next, you have this little box of warnings and precautions. These are some of the fairly well-known uh, uh, side effects, pancreatitis is one, or inflammation of the pancreas, uh, diabetic retinopathy. So these are patients who have diabetes uh, who are getting this drug, and some may have early diabetic retinopathy that hadn't been diagnosed, and it could be made worse. Uh, hypoglycemia, of course, and acute kidney injury 
uh, among other things. So the adverse reactions, the most common adverse reactions, however, are nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and constipation. These are thought to be mild uh, adverse reactions. But just think, you're taking a drug, in theory, that's supposed to make you feel better, but you're nauseating, you're vomiting, having diarrhea, and abdominal pain, and constipated. Uh, so that can be a, a significant problem. So um, you want to be aware of the side effects the class of drug that Ozempic is are called GLP-1 agonists that are receptors in the uh, gastrointestinal tract uh, called GLP-1 uh, receptors. Uh, the medication you're probably familiar with, uh, Trilicity, Baeta, uh, Bidurian, Victoza, many of you are, have relatives on these drugs. Ozempic is well known because I think lots of people in Hollywood uh, made it very popular. Manjaro is also pretty well known. But these drugs all have a similar uh, mechanism action. Manjaro not only uh, um, stimulates the GLP-1 receptor, but there's a special GIP receptor that it stimulates. Uh, they have similar mechanism in terms of reducing uh, gut motility. Uh, they cause an increase in production of, of um, insulin by the pancreas. Uh, so they've shown to be effective in type 2 diabetes, and there's weight loss associated with it. And so... So there's some drugs that are being uh, indicated for weight loss. Now, one of the concerns is that there are a number of individuals who are, well, first and foremost, uh, the drug industry is pushing to get this indicated in children. I think it's already being prescribed for children who are 12 years and older. A, a colleague of mine who's a pediatrician uh, is saying that you know kids 12 years and older who have a history of obesity uh, they're getting these drugs on a regular basis, uh, and they're looking to to push it to younger ages, and I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Um, the other issue is that they're looking to get it covered by Medicare, and these drugs are pretty expensive. Um, and the concern about the Medicare uh, population is that you have the studies were done in individuals who had an average age of 56 years. Uh, they're only about two or 3% of the study population who were people, individuals who are 75 years and older. Uh, if you look at the Medicare population, about half of that population is 75 years and older. So half of that population wasn't really studied well with these drugs. So what, what effects do these drugs have? Uh, the organs that they um, uh, affect directly, endocrine uh, pancreas, the bone, fat, the GI tract and the brain, as far as the GIP, receptors, GLP-1 receptors, the endocrine, the gastrointestinal tract, the heart, and the brain. So if you're looking for uh, side effects or adverse effects, you may think of these organs and these systems uh, that may be affected. So, so you think about these drugs, okay, great, I need to lose weight, um, or I have diabetes, my A1C is you know 15, uh, I'm you know, 20, 30 pounds overweight, uh, so you know, can the drug help? Yes, the drug can help lose weight, it can help bring the A1C down, but is there an alternative approach uh, that is better? And the answer is yes. Uh, if you look at a nutritional intervention or diet, dietary intervention, most people say, well, diet takes too long, et cetera. Well, the right type of dietary intervention is gonna be far more effective than the drugs. Now, many people go on diets and they go on crazy diets. Uh, oftentimes they're on diets and do things in moderation. They have cheat days and various things like that. But if you get on a nutritional regimen you're committed to and you truly change your taste buds 
and you change your lifestyle and your outlook on food, then that's a definitive dietary change and the most effective. So if you compare the effects, and we we looked at the, this uh, uh, in, our, in our study, in our, in our clinic, where we put patients on the fine plant-based diet, uh, and we show significant uh, reduction in not only inflammation, but we show significant reduction in hemoglobin A1C. And this is only in four weeks, and I'll show you a comparison to the drugs. And we also saw a significant reduction in weight, BMI, and waist circumference. Uh, that was pretty significant. Now, if you compare the findings we had in terms of rate of reduction in hemoglobin A1C uh, for our diet, which is in the blue line, so defined plant-based diet and the blue graph, compared to Ozempic, if you look at the Ozempic studies, the rate of reduction in hemoglobin A1C in a matter of four weeks was far faster than you got with the drug. If you compare it to Manjaro, uh, which is actually the uh, strongest of the class of drugs that reduces the hemoglobin A1C, the diet was still far more effective and, and reduced hemoglobin A1C much faster than the uh, drug itself. Uh, and so if you compare weight loss, the defined plant-based diet resulted in a 1.7% reduction in weight per week. This is four to seven times faster are more effective, I should say, than Manjaro at 0.38% and then Ozempic at 0.23% uh, weight reduction per week. So uh, you're looking at if a greater effectiveness of a natural intervention that has far fewer side effects. And I think this is an important thing to consider. Many people think, well, I need the drug, I need the drug, I'm very, very sick. Uh, you may be very sick. And there are times I prescribe medication. And when people don't want to do lifestyle change, I prescribe medications. And sometimes when patients are acutely ill, we prescribe medications. Uh, we just submitted an abstract, uh, excuse me, manuscript today where we show uh, a case series of seven patients acutely ill with heart failure. Uh, and we uh, put them on a defined plant-based diet lifestyle intervention. Uh, we use some other integrative therapies and we were able to improve their heart function, even though they were acutely ill, one was sent home, given up to die, uh, these individuals had improvement in functional status, and at the same time, they had a significant reduction in their blood pressure, uh, excuse me, in their medication list. So you can do it, and medications uh, uh, can be effective and beneficial in certain limited settings, uh, but they're by and large are not ideal for lifelong consumption. Let's just talk quickly about a few other drugs and then I'll finish my comments and open the floor for uh, questions. Um, many of you know about beta blockers. These are medications uh, that are frequently used for people with heart disease or people with high blood pressure. Uh, they're called beta blockers because they uh, block uh, receptors, beta receptors on the heart and the blood vessels. Uh, and they have common side effects and they have a... Um, uh, mnemonic ball fish, uh, B stands for bronchoconstriction or constriction of the airways and the lungs or bradycardia, which is a slowing down of the heart, which is how they work. Uh, uh, arrhythmias, uh, lethargy, fatigue, uh, disturbance in glucose metabolism. There's also uh, fatigue, insomnia, sexual dysfunction, and hypotension. So again, the medications can be beneficial uh, however, you can have a lot of bad side effects 
and it can make your life miserable. I had uh, one patient who's a university professor had on a beta blocker and he was having horrible nightmares. In fact, he was getting up and he was attacking his wife in, in, in his sleep. And uh, it was a horrible thing. We had to stop the medication, of course. Uh, but uh, you can get some re very weird side effects. Calcium channel blockers, again, these are medications that block calcium receptors. Uh, they're very com commonly used uh, in treating individuals with high blood pressure. They decrease the contractility of the force of contraction of the heart. Uh, it decreases the electrical conduction, so it slows the heart down, some of them, and therefore decreases the oxygen demand. But the side effects, you can have low blood pressure, slow heart with some of the uh, calcium channel blockers, uh, conduction abnormalities, headache, abdominal discomfort, lots of edema. Some of these, especially the um, ones called dihydropyridines, uh, they cause uh, quite a bit of swelling, uh, some of them. And uh, can be uh, also you can have edema around the gums with some of them. Uh, and everybody's favorite statin drugs. Uh, Lipitor is one, atorvastatin is a genetic name you may know about. It have effects on the liver, increased blood sugar. Uh, a big trial showed there was an increase in diagnosis of diabetes in individuals on statin drugs. Uh, you have pain and muscles. I've had some individuals who are exercising rigorously on statin drugs have muscle tears, uh, impaired memory, uh, tiredness and fatigue, you know, other things such as headache and nausea. And rhabdomyolysis is inflammation of the muscle and muscle necrosis. And that can be pretty severe in some cases uh, and can be very painful. So just to name a few, uh, these are medications you need to be aware of. Uh, again, always uh, ask your physician uh, about the side effects. And, and I can tell you from my experience, we frequently don't have uh, the side effects of these medications memorized. So they're too numerous to know. Uh, to keep uh, on memory. And the other thing, too, is that when you're on you know, more than one medication, you're dealing with drug-drug side effects. Uh, and so many individuals, we see them come into our clinic and they're on, say, you know, five or six or ten medications or the like, and you're dealing with the drug-drug uh, uh, reactions as well as the drug um, patient interactions. And so the adverse effects of the numerous medications uh, can really outweigh uh, the benefit. And what I found in my experience is that when we see individuals who come in and you know, on multiple medications and complaining of various side effects, the first question uh, in my mind is, could it be, could these symptoms of side effects or new symptoms of side effects, could they be due to the medications? And that, that could be the case whether you've been on the medication for a long time or if you're just on the medications for uh, just a few weeks or a few days. So just because you've been on the medication for a long time, don't think that uh, you should not, if you have new symptoms, you say, well, it can't be this medication. I've been on it for two or three years uh, because you can have new symptoms on an existing medication, even though you've been on it for a long time. Now, why might that be the case? Uh, that might be the case because frequently individuals on generic medications. And what many individuals don't know is that the generic medications, let's say, for instance, you're on a drug called Carvedilol or Losartan or Atorvastatin, the generic for Lipitor. Many of these generic drugs have multiple different makers. There may be 
five different uh, companies that make that generic or 10 different companies, the generic drugs are not as regulated as the original drug coming out. So the original molecule, you know, you know exactly what you're getting. But generic drug 1 through 15, drug 12 may have more of the active ingredient than drug 3. Or drug 4 may have more of a carrier molecule that you can have an allergic reaction to that if you had drug 7, it doesn't have that carrier molecule. So you may have a new adverse reaction to a drug that you've been taking for a long time. And um, that can be something that's problematic. So that's something you want to make sure that you are aware of that you can have numerous side effects to drugs you've been on for a long time. Also, if you've been on any medication for a long period of time, you should talk to your physician. Uh, you should always ask your physician, you know, hey, can I reduce the medication? Or if you're in a situation you go on and you have new problems, new complaints, physicians are quick to write a new prescription. Uh, instead of asking for a new prescription or accepting a new prescription, sit back and talk to your doctor. Hey, could these symptoms be due to something that I'm taking? Should I be reducing a medication as opposed to adding a medication? So these are the types of things that you want to keep in mind. Uh, you should always uh, be in a situation where your health journey consists of reducing your medication burden and not increasing the number of medications that you're taking. So if you're on two, three, four, five medications uh, for, say, blood pressure or for uh, diabetes or whatever the case may be, uh, then you need to start working on your lifestyle so you can reduce these medications. Now, some medications individuals have to be on for a certain period of time. Individuals who've had a stent place uh, have to be on uh, certain antiplatelet drugs for a year's duration. And of course, other individuals with hormone problems or various things may have to be on supplements of certain types, you know, indefinitely. That's understandable. Individuals who've had transplant have to be on trans uh, immune suppressive drugs indefinitely. However, even in those situations, an optimal lifestyle and optimal health condition can reduce the dosage and requirement of, of certain medications, even if you have to take those medications uh, for an indefinite period of time. So keep these things in mind. And uh, those are my comments. I'm waiting for Chef AJ to come back to the live screen, but uh, no. I'm take questions. I, I never left you. I'm right here. I, I just turned my camera off to make a better picture with the slides. You know, that was interesting when you showed the black box war warning for uh, Ozempic, yet people still rush to take it. Yeah, they do. And, you know, there's um, I, there probably a lot of explanations and gets into more human psychology than I probably am able to talk about. There's the desire to lose weight that people have. Uh, you know, a lot of these drugs are made popular in certain ways. Uh, and of course, people don't want to make their lifestyle changes. Uh, people get to a point of desperation. Many individuals are confused. I mean, you you probably know a lot about this, you know, dealing with many of your clients or people that come on the show, especially dealing with weight loss. People have done all sorts of things to lose weight and they've been unsuccessful. So you have this new so-called magical drug and everybody in Hollywood's talking about it or whomever. So then you may want to try it as well. You know, do you remember FenFen and how eventually they discovered it caught it and some people caused heart lung defects? Yeah, I remember FinFin. There was uh, valvular disorders. I was 
So, you know, when the class action lawsuits came out, I was one of a, you know, among the army of cardiologists that they recruited to review the literature and echoes and, and prepare to testify uh, in, in a series of FinFin trials. But, you know, we never did testify. We read a lot of echoes and reviewed a lot of articles and, you know, uh, <laughs> built a lot of money to these big law firms who were running these class action lawsuits. Uh, but the um, the drug, you know, again, was a problematic drug. And, and, and around that time, I think shortly after that, they had, um, I think that's when Medicare stopped covering weight loss drugs. And so if the new GLP-1 agonists become covered by weight, uh, covered by Medicare, this would be the first set of um, first set of uh, weight loss drugs been covered by Medicare since the the FinFin group uh, medications. Well, the reason I asked is because when it first came out, because I was on it in in 1995, that wasn't a black box. It didn't say that on the on the side effect sheet. And so my point is, is how do we know that with some of these weight loss drugs, something even more horrible could happen in the future? That's an excellent question. That's that's the ten million dollar question. You know, because you find out when it's released to the population. What happens with these drugs is that the studies are not adequately done. What I mean by that is the following. Uh, take Ozempic. It's a drug that, you know, it's it, it's a weight loss drug and it should be used lifelong because when people come off the drug, the weight comes back. So to keep the weight off, you have to stay on the drug and definitely keep the weight off. Well, then this drug needs to be studied over 10, 15 years at least. So at least you have a long-term perspective in terms of the adverse effects. But the drug's not studied that long. It's studied for maybe six months, 18 months, et cetera. So you get a, a small window of time. We say, okay, this is what we see, and here are the warnings. But what you, in reality, once the population's on the drug and you get lots of people on the drug, that's when the, the real data comes in. And so, uh, you know, like the FinFin drugs, the people actually being prescribed the medication is doing the rest of the study. And so that's why you don't have a black box warning. Now, black box warnings come after the drug's been released. And pharmaceutical companies, they will say, our research isn't for the purpose of advancing science or improving health. It's for the purpose of marketing our drugs. And so they'll do a study when one population for a finite period of time and then they'll try to extrapolate the indication far beyond the population of people they study. That's so interesting that black box warnings don't occur until after the. So it's almost like, well, we think it's okay. Just take your chances. That's exactly right. And that's what it is. Um, the patient population is literally the, the, um, uh, the guinea pigs. I mean, you are literally doing the study and we will find out. That's what the case is with the uh, Ozempic and those drugs. And I'm already seeing people with gastrointestinal standstill. So, so the gut motility uh, 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 goes away. So they become, the bowels are essentially locked up. And I've had one patient with similar problems. And this was like six months after she had discontinued the medication. And so you have lots of side effects. Uh, I'm concerned about, you know, potential pancreatic cancer in the future, et cetera. And just to think that we're giving this medication to young children. So they have, you know, many years and decades to uh, develop and live with these atrocious adverse effects. 
Well, I mean, it just shows how desperate people are to lose weight, that they're willing to risk their, you know, their health and in possibly even their life just to be, be slim, not necessarily to be healthy. That's exactly right. To be slim, but not healthy. And that's, that's a great point because uh, slim does not equal healthy. It just, it's a certain body habits, but uh, it's, it's better to be healthy and nourish the body from the inside out optimally uh, than to, you know, rapidly try to lose weight through some gimmick. And as I showed you, using the natural, you know, nutritional approach is far more effective and of course, faster uh, than the drug with well, fewer side effects. Because people that follow your protocol or Dr. Goldhammer's or Dr. McDougall, Dr. Furman, they are most of them both trim and healthy. Yes, that's right. And and of course, your protocol. I mean, it's... it's Which is just everybody else's, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't invent it, you know. I always uh, say God did because basically, you know, really all I did was try to explain calorie density in a very understandable manner. And I'm not the one that decided what foods had which calorie density. <laughs> that's okay. You, you're, you're delivering it. And that's important. It's so interesting. You know, not that I'm trying to push people to take any medications, but are there some medications that are generally regarded as safe that, that you or other doctors might prescribe like thyroid medication or things that, you know, people don't have to be so afraid of taking? Well, you know, safe is a relative term. I and mean, there's a, there's a benefit, there's a risk. And so in a certain condition, the benefit outweigh the risk. So I'll give an example. Uh, and I mentioned uh, in my earlier discussion that, you know, we just submitted uh, a manuscript where we looked at a case series of patients coming to our center with heart failure. And there was a gentleman had flown in from the LA area, severe heart failure, systemic inflammatory uh, disease. And uh, his heart was beating at 10%. He was in atrial fibrillation, real bad. We had to give him IV diuretics and, and the like. So we managed him over the course of, I think, four weeks, four and a half weeks. Uh, and during that time, we weaned a lot of medication. We got him off insulin and various other medications. However, I started a medication called amiodarone. Uh, and because he was in atrial fibrillation, I wanted him to be on amiodarone and put him in the hospital cardioverter. But amiodarone, my goodness, it has a, a telephone book, uh, a load of side effects. And oftentimes people refer to that drug as a dangerous drug. Uh, it can affect the liver, the thyroid, et cetera, et cetera. However, I was using it in a very targeted way. Amiodarone is the best drug to help suppress uh, atrial fibrillation in someone with heart failure. Uh, it's relatively safe compared to other drugs uh, from the standpoint of you know, not being a prorhythmic drug. And so I used that drug for that reason. We cardioverted him, got him into sinus rhythm, and his rhythm is normal. That improves cardiac output, his, his heart function even you know, better. And so I was able to reduce that drug to a very low dose. And over time, we'll eventually remove it. So that's an example of how a medication can be used in a targeted fashion uh, in, in a specific way. And yes, you can have benefits, but you know it's, it's only limited. Uh, one other example is a patient that came into our center. She was an 82-year-old lady. And she was on this medication called milrinone. Uh, and it's a, it's, we would call it an inotropic drug. It means that it has a, an effect to increase the, the pumping function of the heart. Uh, and um, we use this drug frequently in the ICU, the CCU, a patient with decompensated heart failure. Uh, and it's a, a wonderful drug that can be used in someone who's in a decompensated state. We've given on the drug. It helps the heart pump effectively. 
turn the kidney flow around, et cetera. However, they did a study using this drug in a pill form, uh, Pfizer did, and they compared it to placebo. And over a period of months, they sold the drug over a long period of time, killed more people than placebo. And so the drug used over a long period of time is detrimental. Having a short period of time, it can be used effectively and help a patient turn around and, and, and to the point you're getting better. This patient that came to us and she had been on the drug for maybe three months or four months, and she was on a wheelchair on oxygen. We put on a nutritional detox program, some of our other integrated therapies, and weaned her off the medication, et cetera. Now she's you know, going on hikes with her daughter and field trips and, you know, and the like, you know, climbing rocks you know, at the age of, I think, now 83. So the point is that, yes, certain drugs can be used effectively in a targeted fashion in a limited period of time, uh, but you also have to weigh the, the, the benefits uh, over the risk. There's some drugs you have to use, and definitely you mentioned thyroid supplements and the like. Uh, make sure, again, you're getting the best formulation of that drug, and uh, you're, you're doing things with your health so that you can minimize the amount of that drug you have to take. I've had people with hypothyroidism, even without the thyroid gland, if they optimize their health, they're not on as much thyroid supplement as someone else. So it, it all it's it's all a balance in terms of how you look at it. Yeah. Well, it must be interesting being more of a lifestyle medicine doctor because you know how to do both. And like you said, if the patient doesn't want it, you don't just say, okay, go to somebody else, right? That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And that, that, that's giving your patients true options. And, and you're right, it is. You know, having a nutritional integrative from regenerative approach gives your patients options beyond the mundane, uh, you know, pills and procedures. But don't you ever just want to say, come on, dude, you, you know, just do this. It's going to work just as good or better than the medicine. Well, we say that a lot, but sometimes um, leaving them to their own uh, will and the illnesses can speak much louder than I can. <laughs> yeah. People so, want to feel good right now. They want to look good right now. That's right. That's right. But a lot, of, a lot of them come back. And a lot of them come back because they um, they recognize that. You know, we've had individuals who used to go through our boot camp class. And it's a four-week detox we used to have on site. We do it online now. Uh, and um, they, you know, went through the boot camp. And I remember them saying things like, wow, this is so tough, et cetera. And we've had people come back. You know, after maybe a few years, six years, said, look, you know, I was diagnosed with this, that, and the other. And I remember back in the boot camp, I felt so great, and I want to get back to that. And so they 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 come back. So oftentimes it takes time uh, mentally and psychologically for people to get to the point where they're ready to make those changes. Right. And some people never will. And that's why it's, it's hard for people that have made them to sometimes accept that in loved ones like friends and family. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I know that person. <laughs> they often become the health coaches. And it's just, I'm, I'm in a coaching program, a six-month coaching program with Food Revolution. And what I'm learning is you can't like, I mean, you can, but it's not effective just telling people what to do. Apparently, they don't like it so much. No, you're exactly right. You just got to have to let them, uh, yeah. you know, let them discover some things on their own. And, and if they have questions, you can you can answer those questions. But yeah, everybody yeah. has their own journey. Well, speaking of questions, we have four that were submitted in advance. We'll get to those first. And if there's time, people watching on the various platforms like Instagram and uh, YouTube, please feel free to post them in the chat now, starting with four questions. The first question is from Mary. And she said, 
how do you get a doctor to consider your age when prescribing meds? Wow. Um, I think the best way to do it is just be point blank. And in the context uh, of a doctor, so let's say, for instance, your doctor wants to prescribe a medication. Uh, I would ask that doctor point blank. Um, you know, what what um, in the studies, um, what was the population age uh, in the studies, you know, for this drug? Uh, how many people in my age group were represented in this? I just mentioned earlier the uh, weight loss drug where it was studied, I think, average age around 56. Uh, but people 75 and older, they're only about 2 to 3% represented in that, that study. Uh, so if somebody wanted to give you that drug, let's say you're 78 years old, you say, well, you know, how well was my age group represented in the study? So to ask about the age of the, the population age of the people studied for that medication uh, that you're being prescribed is a good way for them to consider your age. And, and it may force them to actually go to the literature because we often don't remember the details of, of the study population. Sometimes I have to go back and look and say, what was the original data you know, for anticoagulation, especially when I'm trying to anticoagulate or thinking about anticoagulating someone who's, say, 85, 90 years old. So, well, wait a minute, wait, let's go back. Let me go back and look at the data and see you know, what the age representation was of this age population. Great. Thank you. So just, I mean, why wouldn't they consider somebody's age? You know, well, you're saying they're giving these weight loss drugs to 12 year olds. So. <laughs> yeah. They, they weren't represented adequately. And, and again, it's, you know, you have your doctor and, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but all, you know, due respect, they're busy They're you know, it's, you've got a lot of people with, you know, a dozen questions of problems to solve and the easy things to pull out the prescription and hand it. Um, and even in our setting, we have two divisions, Montgomery Heart and Wellness Medical, Montgomery Heart and Wellness Life Source. And people that commit to the Life Source side, they're the ones where we spend time and work with them on lifestyle, uh, um, uh, excuse me, lifestyle changes. Uh, the medical side, you know, they haven't made that commitment. So we prescribe the medication because that's, you know, essentially what they want. Yep. A pill for every ill, right? That's exactly right. Yep. And if not, then a procedure. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> this, this, um, this is from Anonymous. And she said, Dr. Montgomery, I've been plant exclusive. I've been exclusively plant powered for three years, flexitarian before that. I've released 50 pounds and have 50 to go before I reach a healthy weight and no plans to return to my old life. The problem is my blood pressure still goes up to 200 over 100 when meds are reduced. I take amlodipine 10 milligrams and metropolol 50 milligrams every three days. If I take them every day, my pressure goes too low. And my doctor knows that my doctor cut my meds in half. My new doctor insists I take both every day with no more adjustments. Am I having rebound from the meds? Could there be another issue? And do you ever do consults? Like if she wanted a consult, could she get one online or do you have to be in Texas? We, we do online uh, consultation. The best way to do that would be uh, if they joined our community, uh, I'm on the community stump to chump once a month and everybody in our community have access to me. So questions like this can be addressed. You know, it's non-medical, but I can address it directly. But but to address this question uh, frequently, I mean, medication rebound is, is very common. Beta blockers are well known for it. You can have it with other medications as well. I, I get a sense you would be being on the medication three days a week, not every day. You're probably in that in-between uh, realm. 
typically what we do with our patients, like for instance, if someone's on a medicine every day, I minimize the dose. Then I may go to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I see how they do there. Then I may go to a Tuesday and Thursday and see how they do there. Then I'll stop it. If the blood pressure goes up, it depends on how high. Now, if it's 200 over 100, if it stays that high, of course, then I'll put them back on something. Uh, but the next thing I look at with patients is their diet. So you have to look at, you know, the dosage, you're trying to dial down the dose of the medication, but you may have to dial up the dose of the lifestyle. So, you know, you may be plant strong, but maybe are you eating with time restriction? So maybe they need to do more intermittent fasting. You may need to do more raw plant foods or more hydrating foods. So, so I'll dial up the, and that's why we use a food prescription system with a numbering system, because we can dial up the nutritional part uh, in a prescriptive manner, just as well we're dialing down on the uh, medication. Yeah, and you know, you have a great book. I should really bring it out, or you should show it next time. Um, I have that book, and it actually has a prescription bottle on the cover. While you do that, I'll find it. Wait, Char Charles, will you find it? You know what, um, I, I luckily... I put my books in alphabetical order. Charles, can you please go to my closet and look for Dr. Montgomery's book? Because that could, that even just the, if she doesn't have a consult, even the book could help her. So yep, the food prescription for better health. Be, instead of showing my book, we should be showing your book every month. We're going to go get it. M, look under M. The only problem is I, 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 I spent all this time doing it. And then as I get new books, there's no room if I, I keep alphabetizing them. I don't know how libraries do it. Okay, so we'll get to the next question. And this is from Susan. Dr. Montgomery, when does somebody actually know when to stop taking diabetes medication? My husband's doctor reluctantly DC'd the metformin, but he's still taking glyphosate five milligrams and Genuva 100 milligrams. Some morning his blood sugar can be as low as 66. So he stops the five milligrams of glyphosate. And then in a day or two, it goes back to over hundred. How high blood sugar reading is too high? My husband's lost 26 pounds since last April on whole food plant-based SOS. Oh, which brings me to the last person's question. She said she had 50 more pounds to lose. Is it possible that when she loses them, it, that might improve her blood pressure? Well, yeah, the, the weight, it's, it's, I don't like to say the weight loss will improve it, but uh, the, the metabolic changes, the biochemical changes that occur that will result in blood pressure loss and be also associated with weight loss. So it's not just the weight loss itself. Weight loss is just one of different manifestations that, you know, you're not quite optimized biochemically. So um, regarding the, the diabetes medications, what, what I do with my patients is um, I will put them on, let's say an insulin sliding scale or whatever, but I'll, re I'll you know, reduce or eliminate the medication as long as their fasting blood sugar is always below 200. So if the fasting blood sugars are below 200, uh, then I will wean you off all your medication. If they stay below 200, then we'll continue to work with your lifestyle. So maybe you got blood sugar going 120, 160, 190, 180, 170. It's okay, that's fine. I'm not gonna put you on the medication for those blood sugars. I'm gonna work aggressively with your nutritional regimen because I think those are relatively safe blood sugars where we can work. So I tend to let the blood sugar run a little on the high side. And in some situations, I'll let it run even higher, depending on where the patient starts off. So I tend to be pretty aggressive in weaning these medications. And, you know, the tight control uh, of these um, uh, of blood sugar, in my opinion, the tight control with, with medications can be dangerous. 
And so lots of doctors try to keep those blood sugars below 100, 110, or whatever the case is. And, and I, I don't subscribe to that uh, approach. Okay. Uh, we found your book, and we should actually I should start putting it in the show notes. It's called awesome. The Food Prescription for Better Health. Look at this wonderful cover. It's a pill container, but instead of medication, it's got blueberries coming out of it. Yep. And it's endorsed by none other than Dr. T. Colin Campbell, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn, Dr. Joel Furman. You know, I don't know if you remember, because we met such a long time ago. Yep. <laughs> I I saw you before I met you, and you were in Los Angeles, and you were the recipient, I think it was the Dr. Spock, there was some award. Yep, the Dr. Spock Award, okay. PCRM, yeah. and That's I did right. You're at I the gala. It had wow. to be, God, it had to be... I, I think I was still that heavy. was in 2010. I was gonna say I was still heavy then, and I remember I had a broken knee. So you're right, 2010. And I'm like, I gotta find out who this guy is. So I'm glad <laughs> I did. Yeah. Congratulations on oh, that. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is this your only book, or do you have other books? It's my only book. I'm actually working on a uh, uh, an inter, uh, nutritional integrative uh, regenerative therapy guide. Uh, that's going to have recipes and, and other, it's going to be putting together an integrative therapy approach to things. Great. Uh, this is from Richard and he's writing on behalf. He said, um, my stepmom has been starting to fall when standing. The doctor wants her to start adding more salt. Here's the thing. She eats the sad diet. I told her to get another opinion. Uh, uh, when she goes to the doctor, her blood pressure was so high. I think salt will make it worse. And so, um, she's hypotensive otherwise when she when she falls i guess otherwise has hypertension so do you think it, the diet matters whether or not a person adds salt well the diet matters i think adding salt is an oversimplification you know it's a biochemical imbalance that she's having and i mean if she's on the standard american diet then you know there are a lot of things that i mean salt first when we talk about salt the most of the salt we're dealing with almost all, all the salt you deal with in processed foods is the chemicalized salt. It's, it's not, you know, the natural sea salt. And of course, we can talk about that later. Different people have different opinions on that. But the chemicalized salt is something that's boiled and, you know, uh, at, uh, bleached and that talcum agents to it. But now when you're dealing with salt, we have a high sodium type food. You also have other preservatives that are there as well, you know dyes and, and other type of chemical preservatives. So there are many things that are going into the system biochemically, the processing of the food, et cetera. Because even people who are on the quote, quote unquote low sodium foods are getting processed chemicals in their foods. And uh, you know they can have elevated blood pressure related to these other chemicals and molecules. So you really want to get on a natural, uh, healthy plant-based diet, minimally processed, uh, and, um, and start there. And then see how the body balances itself. We deal with lots of people with what we call orthostatic hypotension, which sounds like what's being discussed here. Uh, and those I like to think are just metabolic imbalances. You have to clean the slate, go on a natural, minimally processed, plant-based diet, allow the body to uh, adjust itself biochemically, and then make recommendations. Terrific. Here's a question from Greg, and he says. He watched your interview last month and he said, 
if have you ever had a patient with severe heart damage that's turned it around? He's had open heart surgery twice, 18 years apart. And his doctor said his heart is very damaged, left ventricle from a widowmaker, first heart attack. And he has CHF and AFib. He's been doing whole food plant-based for three to four years. No support from family or doctors. They don't mind eating this way, but they tell me it won't change anything with my heart. I would love Dr. Montgomery's take on this. Well, we see these patients all the time. <laughs> we we see these patients with severe heart failure. Um, one of the patients, the the, um, the um, case series we're presenting was eighty. Is that was eighty? Is well, she's still alive. She's eighty three now. But at the time we saw her, she was eighty two, uh, and uh, she was given uh, put on a melanoma infusion and sent home to die. And so you know, she went through a program, and you know, she, she had a very diligent daughter who did an excellent job and 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 as a strong family advocate and now she has a much greater quality of life and she's out you know going on cruises and walking to the beach climbing rocks and the like so we see this a lot and it you know takes uh quite an effort but uh yes atrial fibrillation severe heart failure uh the nutritional regenerative integrative approach that we use help these individuals uh, recover and optimize. So let's say the ejection fraction may not normalize, but one of the patients we presented in our series, her ejection fraction started out at 10% and went up to 25%. Well, I mean, she's you know jogging and walking and doing great things. We had one patient, the ejection fraction was the lowest, like 35%. It had bypass surgery, heart attack. And of course he was much more active than some of the other patients, but now he can do you know 20 burpees, you know, it's like, so it's your body can recover. Your body is amazing and it has the ability to heal itself. And if you work with it and nourish it properly, uh, you can overcome almost anything. I, you know, I find it curious because we have lots of doctors that have regular shows on Chef AJ Live and we get these types of questions. I have this specific condition. Will this way of eating help? And my thinking is, even if it won't help this condition, why would you then still stay with the standard American diet? Because that's going to just make everything else worse. You're going to look terrible, feel terrible. And it's not like we have another diet for these conditions. You know what I mean? Like sure. if this doesn't work, it's not like, well, let's do you know keto or paleo or carnivore. So I don't know why everybody doesn't just do it and just hope for the best in whatever health they have for the rest of their lives. Yeah. People, we, we think... Um based on specific disease states that's that's what's presented to us in medicine that's what we think in medicine well i have this condition well, what about this condition well I mean, it's it's really all these conditions are the same um and so um you look in fact i don't remember what page is there's a picture of a tree in my book and uh the common denominator near the beginning i think before chapter two or three or whatever um and uh it's a it's a nice little um uh, let me see. It's a read sample here. Here it is. I found it. I win. Uh, oh, there you go. Okay. I was going to find it here. So you see that tree there. You got poor nutrition is at the trunk. And the branches, you got arthritis, obesity, diabetes, all these things are, but the source, the core source is poor nutrition, which results in biochemical imbalance. And so, you know, we often prescribe pills at the top here. Uh, where you're looking at this branch or that branch, but the key is it's uh, the core. You want to cut it off at the base 
where you have the the poor nutrition. So yes, it works for all these conditions because at the root cause is poor nutrition, biochemical imbalance. Yeah, I, I remember how Dr. Gregor used to say, even if all the plant-based diet did was, you know, reverse heart disease, that would be enough. I mean, but it does so much more, we know. So it does so much, yeah. Much more. Okay. This is from Jean. In a recent YouTube interview, I thought you had somewhat suggested that a history of microwave or cooking food could contribute to heart disease or at least health challenges. Um, so uh, did I understand your evaluation of food cooking methods and your take on balancing plant and animal protein? So what I say about microwave cooking, I don't advocate uh, preparing your food with microwave, even warming it up. I didn't say that it we don't have a lot of data on microwave food preparation. Um, uh, I'm afraid though, when that, if, if and when that data comes out, it's not gonna be very pleasant. You want your food to be as close to its natural state as possible. And the sicker you are, the closer that natural state you need it to be. And then once you recover, then you can do things to the food that's more interesting. Obviously cooking should be in steaming and boiling uh, methods. Uh, you don't want to fry, you know, and a uh, heavy grill, uh, ideally. Uh, and so it, it fell into that realm in terms of food preparation, but not necessarily that microwaving itself predisposed to the heart conditions. I, I just find it to be a less optimal way of preparing your foods. Right. She also adds that she's an 81-year-old woman with painful osteoporotic multiple spinal compression fractures and added collagen animal source protein to her diet in perhaps a misguided attempt to avoid future fractures? Yeah, I think uh, with that situation, I would go with a strictly plant-based diet. I wouldn't do animal protein at all. But the thing she needs to do is she needs to start increasing her amount of weight bearing. Uh, she needs to do strength exercises and the like. Uh, the more strength exercises you do, uh, the better off you'll be for from the standpoint of uh, um, actually reversing osteoporosis. There are some certain strength exercises and certain machines that can be used to help people reverse osteopenia and osteoporosis. Great. Well, this was fantastic Valentine's Day talk, Dr. Montgomery. I see you're a real doctor because you're wearing scrubs. So I know you have to get back to work and I want to respect your time. But if your question didn't get answered today, Dr. Montgomery will be back the rest of the year, the second Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. Pacific time. And he'll talk about all different organs, including the heart. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Happy Valentine's. I'm going to get you a Valentine, Dr. Montgomery, eventually. I'll get you a permanent Valentine. That is my mission in life. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Chef AJ, and happy Valentine's to you and uh, similar regards to your husband. And young guys, have a great Wednesday. Thank you. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific time for first-time author Linda Tyler. This is a beautiful book called The Plant-Based Anti-Inflammatory Cookbook. Of course, it's available on Amazon, but it's also at Costco. She's going to be making several recipes from the book, including these beautiful eggplant parmesan stacks. And look at this, an orange polenta cake. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.